We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps. And today I'm joined in the studio by Ross Feingold of the US-based DC International Advisory. Good evening. And on the phone this week, we have ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. Evening. Okay, whatever time of day it is, it was a bit of a mixed week here in Taiwan with a 21-hour hostage siege in Taidong, high schoolers calling for no cell phone days, and yet another person was nabbed trying to take large amounts of cash out of the island. But we'll begin, as usual, with politics and the presidential candidates talking up some of their policies. And we'll start with the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen telling business leaders this week that if elected, her administration will adhere to a China policy of, in her words, communication, no provocation, no surprises, and the continued safeguarding of cross-strait stability. And she went on to say that maintaining the status quo will be the cornerstone of the DPP's cross-strait policy. Obviously, she's made very similar comments before but do you think her specifically aiming the comments this time at leading members of the island's business sector will go any way towards allaying concerns of a possible decline in cross-strait ties if the DPP does in fact win January's election? Ross? Well the, the problem for the business leaders is having some level of confidence in the future status of relations between the two sides and that that impacts their long-term planning for how they will allot their uh, investment plans and and business strategies both here on on Taiwan as well as in the mainland. And should there be friction between the DPP administration if Tsai Ing-wen wins the election and and the government in Beijing, then uh, it might make it more difficult for them to do business in China. And that's a great unknown for them no matter what Tsai Ing-wen would say in a forum. Well, that's always a point. She did add that she thinks Beijing will accept the administration. She did say this week, Donovan, I mean, can you see Beijing accepting the DPP administration openly? Or do you think they need a bit of a push? I think that's a tough one, frankly. I, my, my feeling is, with obviously with the hacking recently and uh, in historically, I think they're, they're going to bait her a little bit. I think they're going to test her. They're going to bait her. But I, I do think at the end of the day, if she is reasonable and practical, and uh, no, let me rephrase that. If she is, um, if they decide not to be in, too sensitive, then it will be, then things will proceed. In other words, it, it, obviously, they, they, they tend to, because it's their sensitivities that tend to, to tend to set the tone of, uh, uh, of the relationship. So if China gets, decides to get very sensitive about something, then, then, then there are problems. Now, she is, I think she's not going to go out of her way to, I hate to use the word provoke because it's really their sensitivities that seem to be the the, the, the main issue. But I think that she, if she, you know, I think that she will use the language that will keep them from uh, losing control. Uh, but I do think they will they will go out of their way to bait her a little bit, possibly like poach a, a diplomatic ally or two or, or something along these lines, just to. Uh, rattle or cage. Well, to bring that back into the context of the business uh, leadership's concerns, it, it, it 
how do they manifest this baiting? And if it's for the business community, that could mean, for example, or in theory, a delay for approval of an investment project by a Taiwanese company or something along those lines. So what the unknowns for the business leaders is how does that, that baiting, as, as Donovan referred to it, manifest itself? And for them, it's uh, for them being the business leaders, it's a, it's a concern. In fact, it's a very serious risk, uh, regardless of how people vote on election day. It's, it's this great unknown for what happens afterwards. Right, and it shall remain unknown until January. But let's move on to the KMT's Eric Jew, who came out this week and cited plans to emulate the United States' Jobs Creation Act, which, Ross, if I'm not wrong, waivers tax on overseas U.S. business owners who remit their profits for direct investment in the United States. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but, I mean, can you see it working here? And did it work in the United States? It didn't really work in the United States as envisioned. Uh, Companies keep profits that they make overseas, very often overseas, and sometimes it's due to the tax rates domestically where they're co- where the company is headquartered, whether it's the U.S. or Taiwan. So lowering the tax rate on overseas profits, is it's not definitely going to generate more jobs. So the, the, the simple point here is if, if Taiwanese companies could repatriate profits uh, earned in Indonesia or Vietnam or China to lower tax rate, would they necessarily do so even if the opportunity presented itself at a lower tax rate? Is there a way to deploy the money successfully here in Taiwan? Uh, and that might be a greater consideration than uh, well, what the tax rate is on bringing the money back. So if there are not good investment projects here, if there's, there's better returns to be made elsewhere, it doesn't matter what the tax rate here is. Right, Donovan, putting your hat on as head of the Taijong American Chamber, how do your members see this? Well, I don't, I don't know specifically how the members see it because we, <clears throat> I haven't actually polled them on this, but I think Ross pretty much nailed it. Right. Well, uh, it's a good idea. Ross, round of applause for Ross Feingold there. And let's <laughs> yeah, look at... The key, the key point that it made is, is you know, is, is, there, is there a way to, re- if you repatriate the money, what are you going to invest it in? And this is, this is a big problem that, in talking to officials here and talking to the business people here, is that there, there are businesses that want to return, but they, you know, they come back, they can't find a good viable a viable place to put their business or the environmental laws are, are, hard, are harder or the, the, there's a lot of qualification. So so pretty much Ross nailed it. Yeah, I mean, the, the Federation of Industries did come out and question the fact that there's supplies of water supply problems, electricity supply problems, workforce supply problems, and a myriad of other problems that they believe currently exist in Taiwan. But we don't have time to talk about that today. We have to talk about Mr. James Sung and the People First Party, who came out this week and he said believes that Taiwan should push for participation in regional economic integration in what he described as a pragmatic manner and use what he called the cross-strait detente as leverage. Now, Sung supported his policy by saying that the detente could be used as neither Taiwan nor China can afford a conflict. So what about his proposal? Well, I, th- I think most uh, business leaders certainly would, would favor uh, Taiwan's participation in the regional economic agreements. KMT and DPP are generally in favor of, favor of the participation of Taiwan in these agreements as well. So uh, I'm not sure if Song is saying anything particularly innovative with his comments. Uh, And given where he is in the polls, I'm not sure uh, he deserves too much of our attention anyway. We have to be fair, though. Donovan, do you have anything to say about Mr. Sung's pragmatic manner and detente as leverage? (laughs) 
I'm actually going to completely agree with Ross. I think considering his rating in the polls, it doesn't really matter what he says. But, you know, I mean, basically, he did say that neither Taiwan or China can afford a conflict. I mean, yes, he did. Yeah. Do, do you think that obviously Taiwan couldn't afford a conflict, but do you think China could afford a conflict? They, well, the thing is, is that it depends on what, what interests you're talking about in China. There are certain interests in China which are very deeply embedded and invested in Taiwan, and they couldn't afford a conflict. Uh, there are some interests in China which really don't care. They, they would actually benefit from a conflict with Taiwan. So it, it depends on whose interests. And China is a little bit of an opaque entity as well, so it's a little bit hard to, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard. It's, it's hard to, it's, it's so big and so opaque that it's really hard to comment. And we'll just have to see yet again. Well, we have to take a quick commercial break now, but we'll be back with Taiwan this week in a couple of minutes. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're moving on now from politics and looking at a story that could have ended very differently. That being a 21-hour hostage siege in Taidong that thankfully came to a peaceful conclusion, reportedly only moments before SWAT team officers were ready to storm the building. Donovan, did you see this on the news? No, I didn't. And you know why you didn't see it on the news? Because what was quite interesting about this, Ross, did you you obviously read about this, usually they had a, there was a prison siege... Remember the prison siege recently yes. in Kaohsiung? Donovan, got it? Yeah, I saw it on the TV, yeah. That was, that was blanket coverage on the television. It started in the early afternoon and it finished in the early morning. I came to work, the ungodly hour I come to work, turned the television news on and there was blanket coverage of the hostage siege at the prison. I came to work this week and not one channel was covering this siege 24-7. It wasn't even the headline story. Uh, nope. Could could be a variety of factors in that one. Maybe it was just in a rather remote location um, for for getting the TV trucks and the cameras too, or maybe the TV channels are trying to become better citizens and and, and uh, not give uh, the perpetrators of, of these crimes uh, a platform. Obviously, there's a long history in Taiwan of the, in these kinds of situations or other disasters where um, uh, the media has provided blanket coverage and it becomes a platform for the person who's holding hostages or, or exasperates the worry of, of relatives of, of hostages or victims of, uh, if it's a disaster. Uh, and we've seen that this year with, with several of the natural disasters or man-made disasters like the plane crash and, and, and the dust fire at, at the amusement park plus uh, the, the Kaohsiung prison incident that you mentioned. So hopefully we're, we're moving on to more mature news coverage, uh, but remains to be seen. Donovan, do you think more, manu- more mature news coverage or simply it was in Taidong, like Ross said, difficult to get to? Yes. You're being a bit more specific, Donovan. <laughs> difficult to get to. You think it was difficult to get to? But, but let's, yeah, let's, I, think let's... The, I mean, the authorities actually did keep, keep the press away. I was going to say, let's also um, let's be thankful that the incident did end without... Uh, uh, further injury or, or death, unlike the Kaohsiung prison incident where uh, the prisoners did decide to take their own lives. Yeah. I found it quite ironic, though, because the chap that did hold the students hostage apparently was complaining about being framed by police. So then he walked into a building with a handgun and took hostages. Oh, now, in fact, he, he was being chased by the police. Yeah. And he was apparently only facing up to seven years before. Now I take it he's probably facing slightly more. Oh, uh, he'll... he'll... He'll probably plead guilty and uh, you know, ask for a reduced sentence. Um, but, but again, let, let, let's be thankful that it ended peacefully. I think that's the key thing here. 
Right, and moving on to a rather interesting story. Well, I think so anyway. You might not, but I don't care. And high school students here are apparently proposing the idea of a no-cell-phone-day to education officials. And these students say that such a day would be aimed at raising awareness of mobile phone addiction. Now, it, OK, it sounds like a good idea, and I'm one of these people that doesn't think school children need mobile phones. What about you guys? Donovan? Well, actually, I, you know, I, was, I gave a lot of thought to this a bit before, and... And, and, you know, Taiwan is number one in usage for uh, phone, uh, cell phone usage at 197 minutes uh, in 2014. This was the number. Uh, and, but what's amazing is that, that, and that's out of 32 countries, Taiwan is number one in usage. And the average usage is 142 minutes. It's 197 here. Now, in June 29th of 2007, is when the iPhone was re- was released, and as of it, it, but only in 2013 did Taiwan reach 50 percent, 50 percent of of people here had smartphones. And so the timeline on how cell phones have kind of taken over our lives is really quite short. It's really quite dramatic. So now. You and I, you obviously, all, all of us grew up in an age where we didn't have these smartphones. So we, we're struggling, I think, as a culture to try and figure out, well, you know, how do we integrate these things into our lives, and is, is there a point at which we shouldn't? And so they've raised a valuable question. So the question, and I, I don't have an answer. Yes. How do we integrate these into our lives, and how, how much is too much? I don't think any of us know, and I think it's a very good question to ask, and I have no answers. Well, once again, the, the high school students seem to be at the forefront of a, 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 an issue, as they were with history lessons or statues of people uh, that are historically distasteful to some appearing in, in, on campuses. Uh, it would seem a logical compromise would be not to have the smartphones on the desks in class, keep them in their lockers or in storage. Uh, there is... There are good reasons to be carrying a phone, um, especially in a day and age of, of uh, public safety concerns and, and things like that. So uh, parents would probably want their children to still be available via the phone, uh, especially if they're teenagers and they do roam around freely, uh, as as people generally do here. I mean, I saw a news, a news item which really kind of startled me. Um, there's more than one, because I do this, obviously I do the Central Taiwan News, but there was this young woman, she was about 19 uh, last year, and she uh, arrived in Taichung, and she ends up in Dakang, which is a little bit sort of on the outskirts of town. And her GPS failed her, and she actually became lost. And she really, she, she freaked out. Uh, she had never been lost in her entire life. And with the GPS being wrong, uh, she essentially melted down. And she called the police. They were able to track her down using the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the numbers on the telephone poles nearby. The press showed up. She was crying. She was hysterical. So, uh, it, 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 so obviously, you know, we sit with these phones and we're, we're, they benefit our lives in so many ways. But on the other hand, they make us extremely dependent. And I, I, I feel like there's a lot of good questions to be asked about the, the role of these phones in our lives and the, the way that we develop. But 
we've had so little time, like I say, you know, it's only in 2013 that half the population had these phones. So I, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked. Now, finally, police at Taoyuan International Airport this week stopped yet another person trying to take huge amounts of cash. And when I say cash, I literally mean cash because it all came in 1,000 NT denomination bills. And police say this woman had four and a half million NT in said cash in her luggage. But police say that since December the 1st, they have confiscated a total of 44 million NT in cash at Taoyuan International Airport from travellers attempting to take the money out of the country, which is, of course, a hell of a lot more than the 100,000 NT, which is legal. So what's happening here? Do you think police are just getting wise to people taking money out? Or people are actually taking money out of the country in such large amounts because maybe... Maybe they're a bit wary about the future with the election coming up. Uh, it, there's, it's probably a combination of all all of the above. Uh, so maybe the the uh, airport security are being more vigilant uh, for this. Uh, they may have had some training in the preceding few months or weeks to be on the lookout for this. And they're, they're now just trying to, especially as we get to year end, uh, hit their goals and impress their superiors with their excellent job performance for something that they hadn't been doing previously. Uh, there, there could also be a factor of people are, are, are trying to avoid reporting income. Uh, they don't want to uh, have paperwork here in Taiwan of uh, exchanging uh, currencies. So they just bring the Taiwan dollars out and they know somebody overseas who's willing to accept the Taiwan dollars or exchange the Taiwan dollars into another currency. And there, there could be another factor here that there might be a better black market rate outside Taiwan, as unusual as that might be. Right, any plans to take large amounts of money out of the country, Donovan? Um, <clears throat> none that I'm going to tell you about. Right. I mean, do you, do, you, do, you, do you read anything into this sudden sort of rash of arrests at the airport, or detentions, rather, at the airport with all this money? <laughs> no, I really don't. I, I, you know, why this has suddenly become news recently, or, I mean, the thing is, it may have been going on and it didn't make the news, or it could be that uh, you know there there is something going on, but I don't know what it is because uh, from I, I didn't read very deeply into the stories. I just saw the headlines, and they're different. Some of them involving gold, some involving money, and so why it suddenly becomes uh, an item, I don't know. I don't know if there's any connection at all between these stories, or why the press has suddenly been reporting on them. Um, one thing that I do find very interesting, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten about customs is that now it used to be before 9/11 customs was very was very focused on what you brought into the country and ever since 9/11 they're very focused now on what you take out of the country and that seems to be a big change but as to why there's been this sudden spate recently I don't know. Right, and that's where we have to leave it this week. It's a special short Christmas Day edition. So thanks to our guests today, Ross Feingold. Thank you. And Donovan Smith on the phone all the way from Taichung. Thanks. And of course, we'll be back next week with a New Year's look at some of the top stories from here in Taiwan of 2015. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.